Der Quest Podcast. Fonds Industry Conversations. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the Quest Podcast. After a brief flirtation on other podcast channels, we're back with a new season of the Quest Podcast. If you like it, do hit the like button and make sure to subscribe on whatever is your usual podcast providing channel. For this episode of the Equest podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Glynn of Code in Motion. Sam is a cybersecurity expert, and I thought we're better to start than in early June 2021 by chatting to a cyber expert, given what we've just seen happen in terms of the cyber attack at the health service executive in Ireland. So we chat a bit about that, but mostly about the types of issues that can go wrong when firms hit cyber issues. What firms that are doing well on the cyber front are doing and some hints and tips that uh, Sam has for us around uh, outsourcing, around dealing with HQ, around uh, directors and non-techie people talking to techies. And he even has uh, some insights for us on firms that are in the reg tech or fintech space looking to sell into regulated firms. So we cover loads of ground during the course of the podcast. So all you've got to do is sit back, enjoy and listen to Sam guide us through the world of cybersecurity in June 2021. Well, welcome, Sam. Welcome to the Equest podcast. Great to have you here as a guest. Yeah, thanks, Danny. It's great to be here. Tell me this. So we, we record early June 2021. We're going to talk about the HSE uh, cybersecurity breach. Um, I guess cyber is front and center now. It's very much uh, in the spotlight. I wonder, do you feel like a rock star now as you deal with your clients? Are you held in higher esteem than ever? What are the vital services? They doff their cap to you and... and... <laughs> I don't think that would ever be the case with someone who works in, in IT or information security. Um, I do think for, for a lot of clients, it, it's just reinforced what they already know, um, that you know, cybersecurity or information security or you know, security around your data and your valuables um, is quite a risk for every firm. And, um, and when things go wrong, they can go drastically wrong. Um, so, you know, the, the HSE piece is, is quite an extreme example of that. And uh, obviously nobody wants something like that to happen to any firm, but uh, it, does, it does just kind of remind people that um, while risk is talked about in very kind of theoretical terms sometimes, um, the likes of cyber risk is, is a real risk. It could come home to roost very, very quickly and in a very big way. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the, the, what happened with the HSE, which is the Irish Health Service Executive, uh, what happened with the HSE, Sam? Uh, well, I suppose there's a bit of media speculation and I'm not going to add to it, but uh, I suppose at a certain point on a, on a Friday, 4 a.m., uh, it was discovered that there was something untoward going on. Um, within the health service uh, IT systems. And uh, kind of in parallel, it had also been identified in a government department, the Department of Health. Um, and that attack in the Department of Health was stopped, um, but unfortunately it wasn't stopped in time in the HSE. So officially the HSE have called it a very sophisticated and complex um, attack. Um, it sounds like it, it was there for a number of weeks or months before it was detected. Um, and, the, and the upshot is basically the HSC shut down all of their IT systems to protect against any further damage. Um, and the, the criminals involved, the, the um, wizard spider, I think is, is named the gang that's been identified. Um, and the Conti ransomware is, is the type of ransomware that attacked. 
what they have done is they have run ransomware, which you know usually would encrypt the files on on systems and make systems unusable. Um, and the only way to get that data back is either to get a password from the criminals, um, for which you pay a handsome fee, or if you've got reliable backups that haven't been attacked and destroyed by the gang, then potentially you could use the backups to get your systems back. The double extortion piece on this one, uh, which is quite common these days at ransomware, is not only do they lock the data away from you, uh, they're aware that one of your most effective defenses to that is having a backup. So they get around that defense by also taking a copy of the data. So even if you can restore your data from your backup, it doesn't stop um, or deal with the fact that they have now have a copy of the data and they threaten to release that on the dark web or to the public unless you pay a ransom. Um, and then there's a triple extortion, which is in the event of the data being quite sensitive, which it obviously would be in, in a health scenario, uh, they would also threaten to start um, extorting or, um, you know, trying to get ransom payments from the patients themselves. So there was a case in Finland, um, I think recently, where there was a cloud-based system that was being used to store the uh, therapist's notes um, from, you know, uh, those who might have been seeking mental health um, treatment. Uh, a lot of the notes from those sessions where patients would have been talking to the, ther the therapists in confidence, those notes were, were um, hacked and copied by a criminal gang. Um, and they didn't necessarily go after the firm that ran the server. They actually went after the patients. So they started contacting the patients to say, look, you know, we've hacked this system. We can see that you, you, know, you had uh, therapy sessions over this period of time. We can see you talked about X, Y, and Z. If you don't pay us um, a ransom, we're going to um, make that public. And obviously that is a very uh, distressing thing for somebody who's, who's needed that help to hear. Um, and then they've gone further and actually tried to extort a payment from those who are mentioned in the, um, the therapy notes. So one example of that was a, a, a patient had mentioned you know, problems with their parents um, when they were a kid. Uh, their mother was named in the notes and the gang went, contacted the mother who obviously wasn't aware that she was mentioned in these notes and started seeking ransom payments in return for this information. So there's, you know, the, the ransomware traditionally has been about stopping you getting at your data. Um, the standard defense these days has been you have a backup, so you just, you know, uh, restore that backup and you start again. Uh, the gang has moved on now. Um, the attacks have moved on to also take a copy of the data. Um, so just having a backup doesn't, doesn't deal with that issue. Well, if ever there was anything to make you shift uneasily in your seat as you listen to that, uh, that, yeah. that kind of brings it home. Um, but let's just go back to the start of that, Sam. How, what kind of method would have been used to get the ransomware into the system? Is it, you know, James Bond criminals in a volcano lair working all the hours with sophisticated supercomputers? Um, again, I, like I won't talk specifically about the HC attack because it, it hasn't been publicly, you know, acknowledged how it happened. Um, but if you look at statistics, the majority of attacks on most firms, most of the time, get in through, um, you know, a staff member being fooled by an email. So a phishing email, you know, or, or a very targeted spear phishing email is sent into a staff member, uh, which fools them into clicking a link or, you know, uh, to visit a certain website or download a file. Um, and there's a series of events that might kick off that might eventually result in uh, malware, um, you know, malicious software being downloaded to their PC. 
And once that's in, then that's, that's basically opened the door for the criminals to kind of spread their, their infection. And that malware can sit there for a period of time before you detect that it exists, sit there in the background, monitor what's going on, gather information, and I guess then make maximum impact when it is, uh, is uncovered. Yeah, I mean, it, it does depend on the nature of the attack, and, and some attacks are quite uh, quick in terms of once a, uh, the software lands, the malicious software lands onto the PC, it starts encrypting data quickly, um, and, and that can happen quite uh, at quite a speed. Um, and if that happens, or when that happens, it will encrypt the data on the laptop, obviously, but it will also start encrypting any data that the laptop can get at. So things like the file shares that you may have access to because of your user account. Um, it will start encrypting things that are on your network, or again, it may also find other vulnerabilities in your on your laptop or on the network that enables it to spread to other machines and into servers. And and and, and you know, it's, it's why these things are called viruses; they just spread. Um, other more sophisticated ones would be where the the criminals kind of go, okay, well, we're in now, but we don't know where we are, um, or they may not know the type of firm that they're in. So they may sit there just to, you know, gather intelligence about, well, where are we? Who is this person and what is this firm? What's valuable to this firm? Um, you know, what kind of turnover um, do, they, do they have each year? And therefore, what kind of ransom payment could they bear? Um, and depending on the complexity and sophistication of the attack and the gang um, and, you know, the level of defenses that the, that the now, you know, uh, infected victim has, they may be able to sit there and dwell there for, for quite a, a length of time, gathering information, uh, enabling them to kind of then design just exactly what kind of attack will they launch. Um, and that attack will be designed to knock out other defenses that the firm may have, um, primarily finding the backups that they have and either destroying the backups or trying to make sure that they're there long enough so the backups get infected as well. Uh, so basically, they're, they're constantly looking at ways to say, well, if and when we launch an attack and we demand a ransom, what can we do to make sure that this victim has no other alternative but to pay the ransom? And I guess one of the challenges that firms have and, and uh, that you have then as a, a cybersecurity expert working with firms is that the, the cyber criminals are sophisticated, they're clever, they're innovative, they don't stand still. So when you, you know, I guess when you, when you think about the emails that come in that might trick somebody into downloading and opening a file, it's no longer the African prince with the fortune that you're going to be sharing in. It's, you know, the, the, the types of uh, emails look much more convincing. It's harder to determine and identify ones that are uh, fraudulent and, and up to no good. And then, as you said, when it comes to when the attack has been deployed, the kind of plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D that the criminals have for extorting um, revenue from you uh, get more and more sophisticated. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, depending on the, the data sample, uh, because there, there is no one kind of, you know, global source of reliable, complete data on this, but, um, you know, the majority of attacks are not necessarily that sophisticated and they're not necessarily that targeted. You know, they, it's, it's nearly a kind of a spray and pray where the emails go out to whatever email addresses they can find. Um, and then all they need is a low percentage of people to be fooled by that. Um, but a lot of the attacks, you know, they may be designed to look like um, notifications that there is a UPS deliver, a delivery due to your house, you know, because people are working at home now and they're getting a lot of things online. 
or um, you know notifications from the revenue commissioners or uh, you know emails that that tell you there's suspicious activity on your account and if you don't react urgently then xyz service will be cancelled or xyz charge will be applied to your account um, the the nature of the emails changes because you know they know well what what is a legitimate email that somebody might expect to receive now and they will just try to mimic what that legitimate email is um, so that you you know more likely to click on that mail um, but the more targeted the mail uh, then obviously the higher the chance of a success but but the harder it is for them to do a lot of very well targeted emails and that's why the security around your email system and around your partner's email systems is so important because if somebody manages to get into your email account or, or you know an email account in your firm yes they will get out a lot of data in that mailbox and that can present a hell of a lot of challenges around uh, legal fees and investigation fees to see exactly what kind of data was in there but as well as that if they're in the email account they are now you they can now impersonate you so now you know you in inverted commas can start sending out emails to your colleagues or to your clients or to your suppliers, instructing them to do certain things or asking them for certain help. Uh, and because it has come from you in inverted commas, they're more likely to help you. Mm. Um, so firms need to be aware that, you know, their email system could be a critical piece here. And also they need to be aware that even an email coming from a trusted source may not be trustworthy because that person's email account may have been compromised. So when things go wrong, Sam, when, you, when you've worked with firms where they've had an issue, is, it, is this the thing that tends to be what goes wrong, as simple as an email and an email attachment? Um, yes, it tends to be that way. I mean, there are other ways in. Uh, there are other doorways in. You know, IT people have ways in. People have ways in to, to remotely access files. Um, but email tends to be the doorway in because it's quite easy to, um, to fool people who haven't been made aware of the types of scams that go on. Um, and once it comes in via email, you know, if, if you've got into somebody's machine and, and that machine in turn has, you know, vulnerabilities or, or, or certain things enabled that should be disabled, then you're now in and you can kind of spread the infection in other ways. So while coming in other doorways is, is, is another pathway in, um, email is, you know, it's a true spray and pray. You can, you can send a lot of emails to a lot of people uh, in a short space of time. And so when you've kind of worked with firms or when you see firms that are in a good place, right? So they've got very good cybersecurity systems in place. What is it that they're doing that helps to protect them to a higher level? Um, I, I think... There, there's a mix of tactical and strategic. So when you hear of, um, you know, another firm being a victim, um, it is always very useful to just go, right, well, whether I think I'm doing well or doing badly, let's just have a look at how this probably happened to that firm. Um, how did those criminals get in? And when they got in, what did they do? And then just looking to say, well, could they do that here? What have we done to reduce the risk of that happening here? And someone working in risk will understand you know well risk is about reducing the likelihood of the thing happening and then accepting that maybe you know it could still happen so reducing the impact of that thing happening um that's kind of tactical thing so that's more reactive to say well this has happened to somebody we know or this is this was a near miss um let's learn from that um but i think strategically it is very much about you know taking a step back and saying well where is the valuable stuff um 
you know, the data or the systems. Um, you know, what should we be protecting? Um, how do we protect it at the minute? You know, where are the vulnerabilities and, and how would the bad guys get in? Um, and, you know, for each layer of security, you look at it and say, well, if they got past here, what's the next thing we have in place to try to defend against it? And the more layers you have, you know, they, they call it defense in depth. So it's assuming that one defensive measure is not going to be enough. They'll get past that. But if you have defense in depth, layers of security, then you're making it harder every time for the, for the malicious people to complete their activity. Um, and that just takes an investment of, of time. Um, it, you know, there is no one piece of technology that you buy that will solve this problem. Um, but if you just commit to saying, you know, this is a true risk, it's not a theoretical risk, um, let's take a step back and, and focus on, the, you know, the, the crown jewels, the really valuable stuff that we have, whether it's personal data or confidential, um, you know, business uh, internal stuff. Uh, where is that data? Who has access to it? How do we restrict access to it? Um, how do we defend against it? How do we notice if something is going on in there? How do we reduce the chance that it can be copied out? How do we make sure that the backups of that data are separate, completely away from you know, our, our live network? There's lots of things, um, and therefore it can become very overwhelming. And when it comes to IT, because we speak a different language in IT for some reason, is you know, when you're an expert in risk management or you're an expert in your world and you're trying to deal with IT experts and they're speaking a different language, it can become a bit overwhelming and you may choose to look somewhere else. But it, it is standard risk management. It's just saying, well, what are the risks? What are we doing? What are the controls in place to reduce the likelihood? What are the controls we can put in place to reduce the impact? What is the residual risk? Are we happy with that? If not, go back around again. You know? I, I want to come back to that in a moment about how to, how to talk to IT professionals. But before we do, with work from home, um, obviously there was a massive shift to you know, using devices in your own household and different networks potentially and, and opened up new avenues of risk. How, did firms, in your experience, react to that? And you know, were they proactive in terms of identifying here additional risks that's, that's managed, mitigate, monitor, eliminate? Uh, were they a bit more lax than that? Did you see it result in any more? Um, it depends. I mean, some firms were very much kind of remote worker friendly or remote first workplaces. Um, you know, they would have adopted things like, you know, never assume that when you're organizing a meeting, everyone's in the office, you know. Um, but then, you know, when you're in a more traditional regulated environment um, where they've been in existence 10, 20, 30 years, they're, you know, they're, 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 they were an office first world where, a lot of the assumptions around their security was that everything is physically in offices that we own or that we manage. Um, now, the, the migration to the cloud, which, you know, regulated firms may have been slower to do than, than, than the rest of the world or the rest of unregulated industries. But when you move to the cloud, suddenly your data is no longer in your physical premises. So, so the whole idea of physically protecting your physical premises doesn't deal with the risk of your data sitting out here in the cloud. And then with COVID uh, and, the, and the, the enforced move to remote working, suddenly now even the people aren't in the same building. So if you've got this massive infrastructure that's, you know, firewalls and, and various security components in an office, but there's no data in the office anymore and there's no people in the office anymore, that, you know, is, is a problem. And obviously firms would have had to play catch up with that. Um, I think, you know, firms at this point will have caught up with that, I would, I would hope. Um, you know, we're, we're over a year now since that, the, the, the crisis began. 
um, we are probably in a world where there's some kind of hybrid that will that will persist. So the idea that everyone will come back into the office again and that's the only place we have to worry about is is probably no longer valid. And the idea that our data will be running on physical servers that are physically located in our offices that's probably no longer valid either. So this this um, the COVID piece has just kind of pushed people into realizing you know what protecting based on physical location is not the way to protect. It's it's now we have to look at where's our data. And our data is unlikely to be on physical machines that we own. It's probably going to be over here on a Microsoft Cloud server. Um, it's probably going to be over here in some kind of SaaS provider. It's, you know, it's going to be all over the place. So it, it goes back into where is the data? What's the important data? How do we protect it? Which brings me on then to outsourcing and particularly outsourcing to cloud service providers. So I know, uh, Sam, you work with firms that are in the financial services industry and regulated and, and firms outside of it. But... But specifically in terms of Irish regulated financial services businesses, often they're part of an international group and cyber tends to be managed out of HQ or they may have like a, a center of excellence as some part of the business that's not necessarily the Irish business. So from the Irish business perspective, they're outsourcing to another group company. And from the regulators perspective here, they view that as outsourcing the same as anything else. So they're... Mm-hmm. They're very keen to, to make sure that the firm is has like governance and risk around outsourcing, that they understand um, what's involved and that they're effectively they're all over it. Um, have you kind of any insight or any uh, advice for, for firms as they where they have outsourced cyber um, security that they things to bear in mind as they, they try and manage that relationship? Yeah, it's uh, it is fun um, because in those scenarios, you know, you're you're outsourcing to your parent. Um, so, what you might find is the parent is saying to you, the child, in its mind, uh, "You'll do what we do and stop asking." You know, um, whereas the Irish child is saying to the parent, "No, actually, you're a supplier. You know, you need to adopt the the." The stance of a supplier so so we are the client you are the supplier. so we need to make sure um you, you know we need you to attest to these activities and that you have these security controls in place or you you're, you're reviewing these things on whatever frequency and we need you to provide us with evidence of that and i think if you go go into the global you know CISO team or cyber team or it security operations team or whatever they're they're kind of going well hold on a second you're asking me for that you're only this menu over here in ireland you're asking me for stuff that my employer here in the US or my employer here in the UK isn't asking. And the difference there is, you know, those teams are embedded within the UK firm or within the US firm. So they, the UK firm doesn't have to manage the cyber team as if it's a, a third party supplier. So, so in a way, it's kind of like you're, it's, it's a bit like the EU. You're, you're always better to be in the club um, uh, rather than to be outside it. Because once you're outside it, you have to start looking for evidence and, uh, and all that. So, I think that's the challenge for an Irish firm is they're trying to get the parent to act like a supplier when the parent is just going, we're not a supplier, we own you. So stop being a headache. Um, (laughs) What I have found though, is the way to possibly get around that is to try to find friends within the global organization. And that might be the CISO, you know, the, the cyber people themselves and say to them, well, look guys, you know, you know, you're doing good things. But your, you know, your parent, your, your employer may not know what you're doing because how do you tell people that nothing has happened, you know, that nothing bad has happened? Um, whereas if, 
the Irish firm agrees with the cyber operations team or, or the second line team to start producing dashboards, you know, start producing evidence of the good things they're doing. And that shows lots of green and maybe ambers that turn to green. Then that is telling a story um, to the Irish firm, which, which the Irish firm needs, you know, a very clear story to say, yes, we, the global team are doing these things. These things are green. You know, we're in a good state. We're managing risks. But in turn, that enables them to kind of sell that approach to their global parent to say, well, we have to do this for our Irish um, entity over here. It, it is legally required. But just, you know, would you be interested in seeing this kind of dashboard internally? Because it shows you not just um, you can't, you know, it won't just be you have to assume that we're doing the right things. This kind of dashboard will show you that we're doing the right things. Um, what that enables a cybersecurity team to do is if things start going amber, they might be going amber because there's not enough resources or there's technology needed or there's something else needed. And that will enable the cyber team to sell the business case to say, this is amber. There's nothing we can really do about it unless you give us more people or more investment or whatever. And those who are looking at the dashboard um, may kind of go, okay, well, we like the dashboard being green. It gives us a lot of reassurance. We will support the business case to, to do whatever we need to do to send in the resources or the money to get that green. So it sounds like the, the Irish business, rather than investing in, in cyber, needs to invest in stakeholder management training and find ways to ingratiate themselves to to this to the HQ or the, the group. Um, yeah, I mean, in a way, like the, cyber, the cyber people or the IT people, you know, um, it might feel undervalued by the by their employer in the UK or the US. By the Irish company coming in, Irish entity coming in and saying, well, we want we want to actually set up you know a true client supplier relationship and if you were a supplier you'd be selling the news the good stories you'd be selling the good stories of what you do um so let's let me help you sell what you do and when you've done that which which is important to the irish entity from a regulatory perspective and also just for the irish entity to know that this is really truly being managed effectively it enables, you know, you know, the Irish firm could then turn around to the UK firm outside of cyber, you know, into the, the global risk team or into the, into the global operations team and say, look at what your guys are doing for us. Look at the good work they're doing. And then suddenly the, you know, the, everyone thinks, well, actually cyber is valuable. You know, they're, they're selling a good story to the Irish entity. Why don't we let them sell their story to us, you know? Yeah, it's good. It's good advice, I guess, from, from a regulator perspective, howsoever you tell the tale uh when you use group that's considered as outsourcing and it's as covered by the outsourcing guidelines that are under consultation at the moment uh, and the the cloud uh, cloud service provider guidance as well uh at european level so um it's important and you really do have to be all over it you can't assume everything is fine because it's been dealt with at hq and you can't sit back because HQ maybe doesn't want to engage as much with you or, or serve you uh, as much with the information that you need. Yeah. I mean, I mean, always, stick your nose I, I think, in. yeah, I think, I think the, the, you will always hear the message from global HQ to say, don't worry about it. We have this covered. I think the Irish entity isn't allowed just go with that. And, and that isn't a yeah. good way to be anyway, just trusting this nameless team in some global location that they're doing the right thing. Um, you know, the guideline says, well, you can't just take their word for it. You have to get evidence. You know, you need attestations or you need some kind of an audit view that what they're doing is appropriate and complete. Um, so I think that's the thing. It's, it's, it's the Irish entity needs evidence of the activity. 
And that's where you tend to find resistance because they're not producing the evidence on a proactive basis for their own organization. And now you're telling them, we need you to produce the evidence for this little menu over here in Ireland. But what tends to happen after you get through that initial friction is they start realizing, actually, it is a good thing for us to be producing this evidence because it's revealing gaps in what we thought was happening. Because we can't produce the evidence, it's revealing something that we didn't realize was being missed, you know. But so it's why general, picking, you know. Yeah, why is it picking your brain, Sam? Um, have you got any advice or any tips on how to talk to IT people if you are, for example, you're on the risk side or the second line or you're a director or an independent director and you're, you know, you're, you're receiving your report on something concerning cyber or, or, or tech? What are the, what are the tips to, to get through that conversation and actually understand what, what's been told to you? Um, how would I put it? Uh, I would say... The phrase dog with a bone, be a dog with a bone. Um, it it kind of keeps comes to mind. I mean, if if I think of um, people in second line, let's say, you know, the somebody responsible for risk. So let's say the CRO is asking their IT operational people, you know, this this thing has happened here with the HSE. Um, you know, my understanding is, you know, they got in this way. When they were in, they did this. Um, they took a copy of the data. They're now, they're now seeking, a, demanding a ransom. Um it's, it's three weeks later or whatever it is now from the HSE attack and, and they're not even half their systems recovered. Now, now the HSE is a very complex organization. I'm not trying to underplay the task there. You know, they're, they're talking about, you know, another number of weeks before everything is back. They're talking about it being 100 million euro in cost. So you talk about it in very clear business terms. Um, there is a risk, you know, what is the risk to us that this could happen to us? What things have we done to reduce the likelihood of this happening to us? What things have we done to reduce the impact of these things happening to us. And what you'll get in response is the technical, we did this bit, this bit, and this bit. So we have this tool in the toolbox, we have this tool in the toolbox that doesn't tell you what impact has that had on the likelihood and or the impact. And that's why I say dog with a bone. You just, you just have to keep asking the question and say, well, fine, you've just said a number of words to me which sound like English, but I don't know what they mean, but it's not my job to understand what those things mean. What I need to understand is from a business perspective and from a risk perspective, tell me what we have done to reduce the likelihood or, or tell me what the impact of the things you've done has done around our, our likelihood and our impact measures. And tell me what else you think we should be doing to reduce those further so that our residual risk is at a, a reasonable level. Um, and you know, after a few iterations of that and the IT people realizing that you won't go away until you get the answer in clear terms, um, you know, you can then start a, a more informed two-way conversation about, you know, what are we doing? What could we do more of? Um, what do they need? Um, because a lot of the time, this is just a, an investment piece. They don't have enough people or they don't, you know, maybe they think they need, they need more technology, which, which also needs people. But it's, at least it's a two-way conversation. Um, what I find on the IT side is when, when you have somebody on the second line asking you these things, your first reaction is they're trying to blame us for for gaps um you know th whereas usually the second line are just saying my job is to understand risk and yeah even though you speak a foreign language i still need to understand what the risk is in plain english you know so keep at it until you can understand what you're what you're actually being told and link yeah 
Well, yeah, it's really and, and, and I suppose again, it's it's trying to explain to the the IT people that you're not there to assign blame. You're you're there to say, well, have we done enough? You know, you guys are the IT guys. You know, at least from the technical security measures, um, do you think we've done enough, or do you think there's more we should do? Because if there's more we should do, then somebody like the risk manager, or the CRO, can help the IT team develop the business case because the risk team can, you know, put a value on the risk, um, or a cost on the risk. And then say, well, if we, you know, if we spend this amount of money, it reduces the likelihood by this. Um, if we think the cost of this attack is going to be, um, you know, whatever, then by putting this in and the likelihood of reducing by this, then the, the perceived benefit is a monetary amount. You know, so that's the kind of business case stuff that's very hard to do um, when it comes to cyber defenses, because how do you put a value on a defense? Uh, yeah. The risk team can do that. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it. Unfortunately, it gets more valuable after the event rather than before, but, but um, prevention. Yeah, I mean, you know, like all it takes is for somebody in the organization to have gone through this once. And I don't mean to the extent of the HSE's pain, but to have gone through one incident of an email account being compromised or, um, you know, some kind of an information security issue. And then the cost of legal advice, uh, forensic um, examination and all that you see how the costs mount up and how much time is burnt by internal management to manage it all um, when you go through that once you will never want to go through it again and on that note on that happy note Sam <laughs> <laughs> before we wrap up uh, I want to ask you about something completely different uh, I know you work sometimes with firms especially in the the reg tech sector um, maybe startups are, are certainly earlier stage rather than, than later stage. Um, and they often look to deal with regulated firms or they're looking to, to have their tech bought by a regulated firm, particularly financial services regulated firm. Um, what kind of experience do those firms have, the tech firms? What are the questions that they hit and the kind of the pitfalls or the, the potholes that they tend to bump their wheels in? Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I think for a lot of firms, you know, they have got to a certain point of success in terms of, you know, they're, they're now making an income and they're trying to get into what tends to be bigger, uh, more sophisticated financial services firms. And let's say they engage with somebody in that firm and, and that person has a problem and, and this firm sells a solution that really solves this problem. And they think, great, the sale is done. And then they hit the, the you know, the large financial services procurement process which involves a lot of questions, not just about cyber, um, but a lot of questions to assess, you know, what risk is this service provider bringing into the firm? So uh, a reg tech or a fintech or a, or a service provider sees themselves as a solution, um, a solution provider, but the, the, the sophisticated client initially sees them as a risk um, and, the, and that's kind of a disconnect. So it's trying to, I suppose I help those firms understand why are they perceived as a risk and what are the things they can do to reduce that perceived risk. So sometimes it's about, you know, as I say, telling the story, not telling a lie, but just explaining what it is they do, why what they do is not a risk or, or why they're not going to expose the organization to excessive risk. Uh, and sometimes it's about, you know, behind the scenes, getting their house in order. Um, so if it's about cyber, it could be about, you know, uh, getting some kind of certification around the, you know, how they're managing information security risk and cyber security risk. Um, 
aligning certain frameworks or going to ISO certification or whatever it might be uh, to prove that they've got this nailed. So to prove that cyber risk is not, um, or cyber risk is appropriately managed within the firm. But it, 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 that might be what I'm talking to them about, but in, in reality, you're, you're nearly kind of translating or you're helping them understand the culture of what is like, you know, what is life like um, in a regulated firm? Because that culture is very different to the world of a service provider um, who might have got this far because they moved fast and, and broke things and cleaned up the mess um, after the event. That's not the kind of world you can be in when you start selling to regulated financial services firms. So these reg tech firms, they, they think they're going to rock up to the regulated businesses like knights in shining armor to solve a problem. And then Sam comes along and bursts their balloon and says they're actually just viewed as a, a risk rather than necessarily a solution provider. But uh, well, hopefully it's someone else <laughs> that has burst their bubble. Uh, usually somebody on the, uh, the procurement or the, you know, the supplier take on um, our due diligence team within the, the, the prospect. Um, so you're there to pick them up again, Sam. I'm, I'm there to say, yeah, that is a bit of a pain in the ass. That is a bit of a kick in the wrong place. But, you know, maybe there are things we can do to show them that you're on a, on a journey. I hate that phrase. But, you know, show them that you, you are where you are now, but you are going to be somewhere else. Um, and if you get to that somewhere else in, in a certain time frame, would you now be more appealing to them? It's kind of like um, I described it in the past as, you know, the initial conversation with somebody in the global financial services firm is a bit like, you know, a guy and a girl um, or a guy and a guy or whatever it is, go on a date, they agree, another few dates, then they might agree, oh, let's get married. And then, you know, somebody says, oh, yeah, well, I just want you to, to meet my family and make sure that they approve. And then, you know, the family come along with their cyber risk assessments and their, <laughs> you know, due diligence and all this kind of thing. And, and you know, um, you thought you were nearly at the top of the aisle, but in reality, you're you're going nowhere until you've got approval from the family so um it can be a bit of a culture shock um to a firm that has you know as i say has had success but hasn't had success in these types of firms and hasn't been exposed to the world of these types of firms and sometimes in the past you might have been able to get around that by having a sponsor within the global firm who had the you know the, the right contacts to kind of get around some of these procurement checks but um you know, cyber risk is a real thing. Information security risk is a real thing. So le there's less and less of that. Um, there are fewer and fewer people within financial services firms that are prepared to stake their professional reputation on getting, you know, a service provider in the door without all of these checks and balances in place. So it's, um, it's just, uh, I suppose, bringing the firm through the therapy to make them understand what is the world of regulated financial services like and what do they need to do to live in that world. Well, you've created the image in my head, Sam, of meeting the family and then performing a cybersecurity assessment on me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's just your family. Yeah, would you call me the mother-in-law, the father-in-law, or the, I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's very it's good. Interesting. <laughs> well, listen, thank you very much, Sam, for your time. Great insights there, as always, um, particularly around, around cyber, obviously, it being such a, a topical issue uh, for, for obvious reasons, but it's one the regulator has touched on more than once. It's one they expect as a standing agenda item on the, the agenda for regular board meetings. Uh, and it ain't going nowhere. So uh, important for all of us to, to keep it in our minds. Indeed. indeed. Yeah, great. It was great talking, Danny. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.
The Equest Podcast. Fun's Industry Conversations.